Content warning. This episode includes graphic descriptions of police brutality and methods of restraint used against black Americans by the police. There is also a brief mention of anti-Semitism, rape, and transphobia. Listener discretion is advised. Hello and welcome to the second episode of Descent, a podcast hosted by me, Muna Ali. This podcast explores the stories of community organizers who look to solve global issues in their own backyards. I'm grateful to have had enlightening conversations with activists from around the U.S. who are united in one common mission, improving the lives of the communities around them. Today's episode is an interview with Yusuf Miller, a California-based activist who works closely with Racial Justice Coalition of San Diego. Yusuf also plays an instrumental role with the North County Equity and Justice Coalition, an organization that he co-founded. Yusuf's work has had a palpable impact on the greater San Diego area. As you'll hear from Yusuf, his identity as a visibly black Muslim has influenced his organizing work in various ways. Enjoy. Hello and welcome back. Today I'm speaking with Yusuf Miller. Yusuf is a fierce advocate for civil rights through his role with Racial Justice Coalition of San Diego. Yusuf is also the co-founder of the North County Equity and Justice Coalition. Yusuf, thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me. So Yusuf, how did you um, begin your organizing career? Was there a specific person or an issue that pushed you towards organizing? Well, as far as organizing goes, I started in California, San Diego, California area, but uh, social justice has always been a part of my family dynamic, being an African-American, born and raised in a low income area. So uh, once I retired from the military, I started uh, becoming full-time involved in activism. Right. So... um... You actually served as a member of the military for over um, two decades. How did that experience inform your activism? Well, um, in the military, they encourage us to be socially active and they don't tell us what to do. And I found that what I'm best at is uh, fighting injustices, especially at the time while I was in the military, Islamophobia. So, um, that and, and, and anti-Black injustice was what I was doing normally on my off time in the military. So, I mean, as a Muslim myself, though, I'm curious as to why you chose to enter the military. You know, the Muslim um, community faces injustice at the hands of um, imperialist actions by the military in countries such as Syria, Somalia, Yemen, etc., you name it. Um, I guess, how do you reconcile your visible Muslim identity with your time in the military? Well, I joined the military in 1987. So a lot of those issues weren't going on at the time, not necessarily, especially not at this particular pace, but they were were starting up. When I joined the military, I joined as a a medic. So my job was to save lives and not end them. So um, I feel very comfortable about what my role is, was in the military. And a lot of people don't understand it. Not everyone is a runner and gunner, so to speak. So 
there are a lot of administrative jobs. For example, uh, I'm not a combatant because I was a medic. Uh, there are people who are cooks who are not combatants. There are people who are um, administrative people, computers, stuff like that, who are not combatants. So I didn't have an issue with that. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, the military is kind of a neutral uh organization. It can be used for bad or good. So it can be used to harm or save. So um, to get straight to your point from there, uh, what I've seen in the Middle East, some of those things have been troubling in the Middle East and Africa and places like that. And then at the same time, the things that I was involved in was encouraging. For example, when I was in Iraq, I, I supported uh, the Kurds who were being um, uh, chased and killed by other Muslims. So we provided them with uh, safety, security, uh, uh, and medical aid. So um, the administration of military action is really, really the key to that. And, and we have, as a nation, we have a, a horrible foreign policy. And that foreign policy, of course, puts us in a, a, a terrible position when we have our military around the world and um, sort of spreading our colonialist ideas in, in resources and land management around the world. So it's a right. double-edged sword with that. So um, you also joined the military immediately following um, your graduation from high school. You know, I'm not saying that this um, necessarily applies to you specifically, but, you know, the military does prey on lower income Black students by portraying the military as their um, sole ticket out of like poverty and inequity. I mean, I've seen it in my own high school. What are your thoughts on this recruitment tactic? Well, yeah, that's that's pretty prevalent and pretty accurate that they they do um, visit low income areas and try to give them options uh, towards the military. Um, and I, I understand because nobody really wants to go to the military. You know, it's it's difficult. And for me, when I was coming out of high school, they, they did the exact same thing. Um, my survival rate in my particular community was, was probably better in the military than staying where I was. But um, so I made that choice. I couldn't afford college right away. So I went into the military and I went with the attitude is I know they're gonna use me as much as they can. So I'm gonna use them as much as I can. So I right. got my degree. I got a lot of good training in medicine and, uh, you know, emergency medicine, laboratory medicine, science, and things like that. So you're, you're right about them going to the lower income and giving them options out of the, the military, out of the, their condition. And I was one of those people who, who thought that it was my best route. So I guess then, did you receive adequate support from the military following um, when you left? When I left, yes. Uh, when I left the military, um, our, our medical system is slow, you know, but um, I understood that coming out, you know, the VA medical system is slow. It has some problems, but uh, I, I get um, my treatments. I get medication. I get, uh, I have educational uh, benefits. I have uh, income benefits. I have a lot of different benefits that uh are not like any other benefits anywhere. Right. And I'm glad to see that they're like actually supporting you. Yes. Um, so Yusuf, you live in the intersection of several marginalized identities as a black Muslim man. How does your identity as a visibly black Muslim impact your activism? 
Well, um, it, it really improves it. And if I can go back for a little bit, my visible uh, Muslim identity also helped while I was in the military. I mean, there was a lot of Islamophobia in the military, especially when we started heightening the wars in, in the Middle East. And my voice on what Islam is and what Islam is not was very helpful for, for a lot of people I served with. I, I served with a lot of people who we lost friends and they would tell me, you know, I lost good friends and I lost people over there. And I'm like, so did I, you know, so right. we, we have to make sure that we put it in the proper perspective that we're that um, these two things are not necessarily tied together. What's going on in the Middle East and Islam itself as a religion. Right. And to that point, when I came out of the military, um, when I started uh, really getting involved in uh, supporting the homeless, uh, supporting uh, mental health issues, police violence, and things like that. The people who were already in San Diego doing those things, they they saw my kufi and they were like, "Wow, that's cool. Here's a Muslim, right?" And a lot of people might think they're like, "Wow, that's great." You know, they they saw a Muslim, but for me, I felt the opposite. I was like, "Oh no, that means we need to be a lot more visible, a lot more active." So I made sure that everywhere I went, I made I had my kufi. I had it on anyway. But um, I, I even started coordinating my kufi with my tie and jackets and everything, you know, just people, people really noticed that there was a Muslim there and that we care about things that affect uh, America. We care about things that affect uh, African-Americans, Latinos. We care about things that issues at the border. But we are very complex people, just like everybody else is a complex people. And you can't put us in a little box. So um, I like to do that to let people see that Muslims care about things and encourage our brothers and sisters to come out and be active in, in uh, social politics. Absolutely. So um, I'd like to now transition to um, talk a little bit more about the specific organizing work that you do. So you're a member of the Racial Justice Coalition of San Diego. What kind of work do you guys do? Well, we do... Um, uh, like in the title, the racial justice work, and that type of work includes uh, police reform. It includes uh, support of the homeless and mental health issues that disproportionately affect people of color. We support the the uh, the Asian American community, and we we do it from different aspects because we are a coalition and we have people of all those representations in our coalition. So we make sure that we stay informed what's, go what's going on with our brothers and sisters, whether they're indigenous, Asian American, African American, uh, immigrants, uh, people at the border issues, and we address all of those issues as a racial justice uh, consciousness. So um, you talked a little bit about how Racial Justice Coalition um, works specifically with police reform. So you've spent a lot of time working with the San Diego police chief to share your community's concerns. Has the San Diego PD been receptive to these concerns? You know, there's peaks and valleys. And I, if I was to say receptive, I would not give them a great mark in that at all. Right. But um, we, we just still forge on, you know, we just keep keep putting up these arguments. We go to, uh, we lobby, we lobby to the mayor, city council, the police chief, the, the sheriff. We go uh, and, and try to inform the community for their backing on what's going on. We go to the media to make sure that these grievances are out loud 
to get the community support so we can make changes. So um, yes, we have a long history of working with the uh, talking to the chief and it has not always been receptive, but when it's not, we are aggressive in making sure that everyone knows that they're not participating and the vice versa, when they are, we let people know that we've made progress in one area or another. Right. So um, the San Diego Police Department, um, like most other police departments in our um, country, um, has a violent history towards black and brown people. Um, I read an article where you talked about the San Diego PD's use of neck restraints, similar to that of the one used to kill George Floyd. Do you think our nation can um, move past such archaic methods of restraint or is our modern day policing system stuck in the past? No, we can move past it. And, and I, I must say that the Racial Justice Coalition of San Diego, which is headed by uh, Ms. Buki Domingos and Dr. Darwin Fishman, I'm on the um, the leadership council on that on that uh, coalition, and we've been fighting against neck restraints for three years now. And um, like I said, we did all the lobbying, all the talking, all the seminars, you know, and and things like that, and and it fell on deaf ears in the law enforcement. They just counter with trying to support it. But eventually we got the next restraint. The uh, carotid restraint is what they call it around here. They have a different restraint, different from the one they used on George Floyd. But for us, all neck restraints are the same. You shouldn't right. be uh, restraining that vital narrow corridor. So um, we had it, it ended here in San Diego City. And then it ended in San Diego County. And, and after we finished that, we started supporting the move in the efforts to end it in California, the state of California, and that happened as well. So with legislation and, and activism, inside and outside work, it, it can change and we've seen it. So that, that has been changed. The, the neck restraints are no longer authorized in San Diego city and in the county and or the state. And it started with the first day working three years ago with the I Can't Breathe campaign of the Racial Justice Coalition of San Diego. I mean, it's also really critical to note, though, that um, our police systems descended from slave capturing squads. Um, do you think our policing systems can ever truly be reformed given their violent history? I do believe they can. And it takes a you know, because if we talk from back in the 1800s and 1700s, we're talking about a time where they have traditional violence against communities, right? So they have to be changed culturally. It's not really simply just policy changes, which we're working on now, right? It's actually when you bring in officers, the culture of how to do policing has to also be dismantled. So we work on those things by de-escalation policies that we work on. Um, we work on um, uh, different different tactics that they use to be more humane, uh, canine units and things like that that they use dogs on on people and like I said, the neck restraint that that we ended here in San Diego. So it's a it's a deeper movement than the, than um, simply the the George Floyd tragedy. George Floyd. Floyd tragedy was was one aspect which needs to be dealt with along with a lot of other aspects of policing 
So uh, with reform, with reform, we have to look at many different aspects of policing and put equal pressure on all of those uh, pressure points to make a cultural change. So I guess that's a good um, transition point to um, a debate that's arisen in activist communities recently. You know, the concept of reform versus abolition. Where do you stand on this issue? I'm definitely a, a reformer. That's where I stand. And um, I've seen it work and I've had it work, like I explained to you before. And uh, that's just on the neck restraint, which was killing people, not only George Floyd, but Eric Garner in New York. Uh, also here, we've had um, Vincent Valenzuela, uh, uh, Furman Vincent Valenzuela, who was uh, lost his life uh, in, in, in chokeholds and and. Robert Branch was choked here, a middle schooler was choked here. So these things have been going on and we've seen changes because we've been working on it every day. It's not just because of a national issue like George Floyd. Before George Floyd, we've been working on this for years. So I've seen uh, reform work. For example, another city which um, over-policed protesters and wouldn't allow us to express our First Amendment rights when we protest. So uh, another organization that I, I'm in, the North County Civil Liberties Coalition, we went to the city, the mayor and the city council, told them about how heavy the police are because of this ordinance. And we fought for a year to change the ordinance in, in, to make it uh, match with the, our constitutional rights. But it happened, it passed, the ordinance was changed and we were at the table crafting the language to make it match the, the constitution. So I've seen in my experience reform happen, actually come to different milestones. So yes, I'm definitely a reformer. So then um, as a reformer, how do you address the concerns of the other side, people who want to abolish our current systems? Well, I don't really address it. I just try to understand it and know where they're coming from. And it has its merits, and I, I try to applaud them and if they get any, any traction, which I personally haven't seen any yet, but I know a lot of uh, abolitionists here in the San Diego area, and I talk to them, and we disagree on a lot of things. But what I try to avoid is the fractionalism that happens in social movements, and they, they right. destroy them when you have them. So I try to... Um, stick with the merits of my approach. I believe in a diversity of tactics. They can do their tactics and we, we can do ours. And ours doesn't destroy theirs. There's a popular belief that just our existence destroys the other side, but that's ridiculous. So their efforts don't destroy ours either. We're just moving in the same direction with two different tactics. So I, I try to avoid getting into any uh, deep arguments about who is doing it the right way or the wrong way, that's not an argument. If you look through the history of, of protesting and organizing and rallying and, and social justice, whenever you see the groups break up, then they fall apart. Malcolm X, even during the Martin Luther King camp, um, you can go back as far as the Whig Party and the Free Soil Party and, and all of these different uh, parties and groups, you'll find them. The Black Panthers, You'll find, you'll find that when they started debating on tactics to a degree that broke them apart, they then ultimately died out. And that's what I'm trying to avoid. I'm not trying to repeat the mistakes of our, our former activists. 
Right. But I think it's also important to note that, you know, the Black Panther Party and Malcolm X, two of the specific groups um, or and or people that you um, addressed, um, they also um, there was interference from, you know, the government, you know, the FBI, the CIA. Do you think that, you know, reform and I guess abolition is truly possible given the federal government's intervention in activist movements? Well, the the government's intervention accelerates things but they can't accelerate something you don't give them. So that's, that's the problem with the Black Panther Party at that time and with uh, the, the Nation of Islam issue with Malcolm X and, and Elijah Muhammad. If there was no issue to exploit, they wouldn't have been able to exploit it. So that's, that's the point I'm making with that. So government intervention is always there when it comes to uh, people of color trying to do better for themselves. And, and local intervention as well. So um, it's always there, but my point was not to give them something, make them work for it. If they're gonna destroy us, make them work for it. And I'm, I'm here to stand in front of them if they wanna work for it, but I'm not gonna give them anything. I'm just a little confused. What does um, the issue of exploitation, like the issue that the federal government wants to exploit, what specific issue is that that you're referring to? Uh, a conflict between uh, groups in, in one particular group. So right. and you could have one group and two, two different theories in that group. And if it's causing a big enough rift, then they can take that and exploit it to make it bigger, make people more violent, make one side think they're attacking the other. They all divide and conquer. They've used it and they're experts at it. And they do that within uh, every group that fell apart. You can find that at first, initially, it started with a minor disagreement in a group, which was then exploited into a implosion of that group by um, subversive groups. Right. Um, and I think it's also important to note that, you know, um, the intervention that they took um, went to the extent of actually killing revolutionaries, you know, Fred Hampton, for example. What does effective activism look like in a surveillance age where um, our I guess those surveillance agencies can, you know, suppress movements like that, regardless of whether or not, you know, exploitation occurs, they still have that ability. How do you address that? Well, um, it's hard to address because it feels like they're always one step ahead of us on their technology, their surveillance, um, uh, in infiltration with with, uh, uh, people who are in there just to destroy us and watch us and things of that nature. We have to be vigilant. We have to make sure that we are uh, with people of like minds. And then it takes some bravery. I mean, a lot of people, they take one route and they're saying, okay, I'm gonna always cover my face. I'm gonna always, uh, all of our meetings are super secret and all that kind of stuff. And that's one route to mitigate it. Uh, I'm, I'm from the camp where I say, I'm gonna be out here loud and proud I'm standing up for the uh, black man, woman and child and everybody who's oppressed. And here I am. You know what I mean? So I don't have any censorship on the way I do it. And people take different tactics, whichever makes them feel comfortable and safe. So uh, we get threats. We get threats to our lives. We get called uh, non-patriotic. We get all these kind of things. But all of the our our early generations, they all received those. They all received those. And a lot of times they were successful. Fred Hampton and so many others, they were successful in that because they were so out and bold. But this takes sacrifice. We're not just playing activists, right? This is Mm -hmm. sacrifice. 
We don't get paid for it. We don't get any of these things. It's just for the, the, the righteousness of it. So then, um, hypothetically speaking, would you be willing to, I guess, sacrifice um, your life, be a martyr for the cause? Yes, of course. Every day that I'm out there, I'm willing to do that, that sacrifice. Um, and I, I think it should be a sacrifice that's worth the sacrifice. Some people nowadays, you see people wanting to get some kind of 15 minutes of fame and they're out there just to antagonize or get some kind of, uh, that's not the way at all. So the, the, um, there are different, there's different methods for this, uh, uh, demonstration when people want to do uh, civil disobedience, they want to get arrested and all these kind of things. And to me, that had its, its it had its time. I I think that's just um, just ceremonial. I think it's theatrical, and I, I'm not into that kind. I'm, I mean, I'm I'm down for serious action, not not the theatrics that come along with it. Everybody, in my opinion, wants their Martin Luther King badge. They want to get their picture with their handcuffs on, you know, and, and all of that stuff. That, that's what, that annoys me personally. I don't make a big issue out of it. I let people do whatever they do, but uh, some people come out for the media attention of being handcuffed and sitting in front of a building and blocking the door. It's not my way, but I, I support them because again, I don't want division within our ranks so that someone can, uh, exploit it. But that's not my form of sacrifice. My form of sacrifice, I'm going to sacrifice. I'm going to sacrifice for something real. And, you know, I think that by extension, um, the Black Lives Matter movement in and of itself has become, I guess, a trend for white folks to be seen as, you know, woke. You know, they go out to their protests, they take their pictures with their signs, you know, they um, say, like, we stand with you, but they don't make any actual tangible changes. Do you think that, um, white people need to do more as allies, um, as advocates to stand against racism? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, 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 um, I've seen what you're talking about in my own experience and there's a way to be an ally and not all white people know how to, how that way should go, you know? So some of them try to be out front. Some of them take movements in ways that we're not trying to go and they are not being instructed and informed on what we need as a people struggling. So um, those types, we have to pull their collar, get them in line, educate them on how to be a, a proper ally, and if not, give them the boot. But they need to be educated on what allyship is about and how it's going to be. The, the black and brown voice or the indigenous voice or whoever's voice that's experiencing the, the trouble those voices need to be followed. So if I'm at an in, in indigenous rally, I'm not going to put my black voice above my indigenous brothers and sisters. It's, in, it's improper. And if I'm at a, a brown rally, I'm not gonna put my black voice ahead of my brown brothers and sisters rally and the vice versa. And the same thing with our white brothers and sisters, when they come in, they need to play the back seat until someone guides them on what we need from them. And, and they follow that. And if they can't do that, it's time for them to do something else. Sit back and, 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 and vote or something like that or, or something that's not in our, in our circle. You talked a little bit about how white people are taking um, black led movements and I guess misconstruing them. So like my first thought was, you know, how people 
um, were, you know, burning down buildings. You know, a lot of um, Fox News um, conservative types like to claim that, you know, Black Lives Matter and Antifa are all burning down our buildings and, you know, society is going to go to ruins. But do you think that, um, I guess, addressing your rage that way is a proper method? Do you think that, you know, burning down buildings, et cetera, is a proper method of, I guess, social protest? Yeah, it's a natural stage because in this nation and many nations around the world, when you first speak up, the people in power don't listen. Uh, and it's an unfortunate precedence that they gave us. We didn't start it, they gave it to us. And this is the unfortunate track. You speak up, you're ignored. And you're ignored long enough that you now have to shout and you have to break and you have to burn. And then they say, invite you to the table. That's a horrible uh, process, but that's not the process we started. That's not the process we initiate. They initiate this step. I would like to go for, we, st we talk about the problem. They invite us to the table. We fix the problem and we move on. But that's not the way it goes. But to that point, I want to make one, one other point before I make this the second point, but that Black Lives Matter and Antifa are two different things, as I know you're sure aware. And mm -hmm. what Antifa does should not be put on Black Lives Matter as an organization, nor Black Lives Matter as a movement, because Black Lives Matter as a movement has been a movement since the first Africans touched soil here. So it's not, it's not started with that organization, but they've captured lightning in the bottle with that term. I love the term and I support the organization, but Antifa, what they do should not be attributed to Black Lives Matter, the organization or Black Lives Matter as the movement. And um, we should make sure that we keep those two things. They got different agendas, both of their agendas, they match in some ways and they diverge in others. So uh, I just wanted to make sure that that was clear. And um, where I was going with that afterwards is that, um, wow. So I'll, I'll just uh, stick with that one. Okay. <laughs> well, I think though that um, Fox News and other like conservative media groups have conflated um, Black Lives Matter and Antifa into one big super radical organization that's working to take down the federal government. You know what I mean? So how does um, the influence of the media impact social justice movements like Black Lives Matter, like Antifa? Well, um, I found that you have to be careful of who you associate with because that line that they use, we're trying to take down the government, is not too far from what Antifa does, right? So they put that in their their what they're what they're all about it's not necessarily what uh black lives matter is 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 about so they try to take advantage of their proximity to our movement the black lives matter movement they're trying to put them as a the, their proximity to our movement to then have cause to come against us but it's obvious what they're trying to do and the they use the media to help them spoil the attitudes of people who are not close to the issue and they're just trying to find out. They just need more information. And what they hear, they hear Antifa trying to destroy buildings, burning things down, and therefore Black Lives Matter, burning things down, want to destroy the government. But the two goals of the two different organizations are different when it comes to government overthrow or, or, or anarchy in general. The, you know, they're different on that matter. So people should be aware of that. So then I guess, how do you address um, conservative propaganda that Black Lives Matter wants to, you know, burn down our buildings and destroy the government and, you know, 
overthrow everything that we know. Well, I, I try to make sure that they understand that Black Lives Matter has a webpage. They have a website. They have leaders. They have uh, people who speak for them that are in the organization. Listen to, to them. And if you hear them say those things, then maybe you have a point. But Antifa also has, a, has uh, information you can get about them and see what they do. And if you have a point against them, then make that point but that they don't necessarily cross over. So I ask people to educate themselves and not to be educated by the media because the media, you know, takes whatever hot, fantastic story they can take and they run with it. So that that's what we're plagued with is that proximity to a group such as that. Now I'm not knocking that group. I'm not knocking them at all. What I'm saying is, like I said earlier, people can, can, can use differences between groups to destroy the whole movement. And right. this is another one of those tactics, uh, attaching us to uh, people who want anarchy or national uh, uh, governments are, are bad and all these kind of things. Uh, we have to be careful when we, how closely we associate with other groups. And I guess you mentioned um, the concept of like educating, um, you know, using websites, et cetera. But I mean, to counter that, a lot of conservatives think that, you know, the websites of Black Lives Matter and Antifa are just fake news. You know, they just shove it off and refuse to acknowledge it. So how do you, I guess, force people to educate themselves if they're um, in this age of like disinformation? How do you expect people to grow past their understanding of fake news? Well, those people who are who believe in fake news, some, you can't change their minds. They they're not looking for the answer. They're looking for a non-answer. You have to be able to recognize who you're talking to. Myself, I'm not interested in making sure everyone is educated. That's not my job. Um, my right. job is to make sure I make changes and reforms in in our our society when it comes to people of color, and the ones that want to listen. I make sure that I lay the information out flat and clear and understandable so that they can make a, a informed decision. There are people you can give them very clear evidences, very clear uh, uh, references, and they'll still say, no, I disagree with you. And they walk away. I'm like, fine, right? They can walk away. Mm -hmm. But you've done your job in, in expressing that. And we've found lately that facts are not the things that change people's ideas. So I don't give too much energy into converting the masses, but the people who are honest and genuine who want to come and listen and hear the hear what's really going on, they find it very useful. Right. So do you think that, you know, our current culture of injustice will change under President-elect Biden? Do you think that his policies will provide um, much needed reforms to our policing system and then by extension, our criminal justice system? Well, I think that's one of those uh, wait and sees. I don't have a lot of confidence in any uh, person sitting in that chair in, in, uh, at the presidency or vice presidency. Uh, Biden and Harris has had their, their issues with um, a lot of the things that we've been fighting for. They claim that they're going to make a difference and we have to hold their feet to the fire. Uh, in, that, in that sense, they're their presidency and their, their administration is not going to be much different from Trump. It's going to be different, of course, because this, this was a, actually a, a disgrace of an administration. But it doesn't mean that we're going to have all roses that once he go, he's gone, because he was just a 
symptom of a deeper disease in this nation. So the Bidens are going to be not too far off from the Obamas who are not too far off from the Clintons who are not too far off from the Bushes and, and Reagans and all these people because the presidency is a thing. It's, it's a position and a lot of baggage comes with that position that they have to uphold. So I don't put my, my faith in the administration. I put my faith in the people. And I guess it's important to note also that, um, you know, Joe Biden has a history of um, being against segregation, um, promoting the 1994 crime bill. Harris has, you know, promoted um, violent criminal justice um, measures against trans prisoners. Do you, um, I guess, what do you have to say to Biden-Harris supporters who believe that, you know, we need to look past their history and, I guess, rebuild our nation from, you know, the four years of Trump? Well, there's no looking past people's history. The only thing we can do is monitor them and hold their feet to the fire. There are people who have bad histories, for example, Malcolm X, right? And we don't, ex- we don't go past his history, but we make sure that we hold his feet to the fire when he sits in a place of leadership and make sure that they don't go back on their promise to, to help and, and support the right thing. So of to those people who are blind supporters, um, I, I you can't like I said you can't change their minds, but you can get them into a place where um, when they go back on their promises or delay activating their promises, that we all hold their feet to the fire. You think they're great? Then you help me hold their feet to the fire to these issues they said they were going to be about when they came into the office, their first hundred years, their first year, their first uh, two years, halfway through and and things of that nature. So we can sit back and say, let's see what they're going to do. And when they don't do it, we have to pounce on it right away to make sure we hold their feet to the fire. Generally speaking, how do you hold politicians accountable for their actions? Well, the main thing is, is, if they're up for election or re-election, that we we start a groundswell that will um, have them lose their jobs, basically. And you have to do that before the last year of their presidency. That's why the first hundred years, the first year, and the first the second year, we need to make our decision then if these people are going to be uh, the people they promised to be. And the next two years, getting them out of office. And a lot of times we wait too late. We want to wait until November. We want to wait till the year the person is out of office. But we need to let them know your job is will be up starting halfway through the midway point. And that's how you hold them accountable because that's all they understand. They only understand losing their job and losing their position. They don't understand how upset we are about it. They don't understand any of those things. So the more we 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 watch and we document what they're doing and not doing. And then we make a decision in an early enough point that we can get momentum to remove these people from office. And that's really the only way uh, that they understand. But along with that, local politics is politics that you really need to be involved in because those work up. You need to elect representatives. You need to elect senators, mayors, city council members, all that are supporting these issues. And that that's a trickle up kind of theory, you know? So when we get to pressure to put on, on a presidents and vice presidents, they should be coming from your representatives and senators. And that way we have uh, multiply our voice and multiply our strength. 
And I guess with holding um, people accountable, I think back to what you said about Trump and like how more people voted for him this time than they did in 2016. I think it was like 74 million votes compared to 71 or something like that. Um, Do you think that um, as Americans with the growing number of supporters that Trump has, um, is it truly possible for us to, I guess, look towards a brighter future given that more people are moving further to the right on the political spectrum? Well, I don't think they are. I think they've always been here. They haven't been voters. A lot of people aren't voters. But when it came time to risk their favorite person, then they came out to vote. A lot of the people who voted for Biden were first-time voters. They were first-time voters because they seriously wanted to get rid of Trump. So I think the situation of the nation has not worsened at all. It's just the nation the way it's been for hundreds of years in these two polar uh, groups. So I I don't see a problem with conservatism. It's the same that it's always been. It's just that now people are voting more and this was a very critical race. So they came out to show who they are and they've always been there. They just now put it on paper. Right. You know, so we had a lot of extra voters in the in the left and the right had a lot of extra voters as well, because, like I said, they were always there. They just now wanted to make sure that their side won. Um, So you talked a bit about how more people voted. And I think a large majority of, you know, these new voters were younger people. Um, So I guess I'd like to transition to talking a bit about the role of young people in activist movements. From March for Our Lives to climate organizers, you know, I think young organizers and young people who are civically active are moving us towards a more radically reimagined future. How does Racial Justice Coalition of San Diego support young activists in your area? Uh, We encourage a lot of young activists to join our coalition, and we ask them if we can support them and what they do. For example, here in the North County Equity and Justice Coalition, which I'm also a part of, we have uh, nearly 10 youth-led organizations that, that are a part of our coalition here in North County. And I, we're the only organization that has that many youth, uh, youth organizations. We have um, uh, Black Student Union. We have um, Clean Earth for Kids, which is a, a a youth group who, uh, for the environment, uh, they they have a, a an adult organizer, but it's mostly kids doing the work. Uh, we have uh, teens against racism. We have uh, several different Black student unions. Uh, we have the NAACP. Um, um, kids demand action. So, it, uh, a youth demand action. So we have we have and, and many more. So we have several groups of youth who are involved on this level and what the youth ask us i ask i don't tell them what they want i ask them what they want and they tell us that they want to use our experience to know how to make the changes that they want to make they have the energy they have the the uh the heart for it and they want to know the how so we try to pass on our experience the problem is sometimes some of our adults, we have the, the history of getting all riled up about a thing and then fizzling out later. That's the main thing I tell them that I don't want to uh, pass on to them. That's been a very uh, 
troubling aspect of activism. Like you mentioned, mm -hmm. March for Our Lives. March for Our Lives, people were all in the streets and then it fizzled out. Uh, uh, um, Me Too movement fizzled out. Uh, a lot of these movements, they fizzle out and um, not until the next event happens. And we have to get beyond that. And that's what I was worried about and still worried about with the George Floyd movement, that um, it has reached a fizzle out period, but legislation has took it, taken its place. So those of us, we knew, we knew it would fizzle out, right? It couldn't last forever at that momentum burning down and marching in the streets and all of those things. But we had to switch from that type of, of, of protesting to legislation and, and law changing. So now that, now that we're at the table. So I, I try to encourage them and give them that little background of, of protesting and, and advocacy. The inside game and the outside game is what I call it. The outside game is the marching and the rallies and the yelling and, the, and all those things. That's the outside game on the street. The inside game is legislation, laws, advocacy, uh, voting. That's the inside game to change from the inside. So we need both of those. Unfortunately, there's some of us to say only the out ga outside game is legitimate. Uh, that's going to be used against us. And some people to say, okay, only the inside game is legitimate. Well, that, that's used against us as well. So we have to keep moving the needle forward from our different diverse tactics to make sure that we're, we're going ahead in the future with something that we can hold tangibly. What kind of tangible changes do you think America needs to make? Um, what kind of future do you vision for, envision for America? Well, racial equity, I think, sums it up. I mean, equity, period, just sums it up. So right. um, not just in law enforcement, uh, we need equity in education, we need equity in employment. We need equity in mental health services, all, all sorts of things. Uh, we find that when violence and crime and things of this nature go down, it's not because we have more police or less police. It goes down when we have well-funded education, well-funded healthcare, and a livable wage. The person can work one job and support their family. That's the things that make crime and these issues go down. So. We have to attack it from all of those points if we want to see a different future. And those points exist. So instead of a, a utopic idea that doesn't exist anywhere, this ideal actually exists. It exists in the Netherlands. They have lowest crime rate. And what do they have that's different from ours? They have a higher minimum wage. They have low unemployment. And they have a well-funded education system that people have access to. So this, uh, when you're working on um, police reform, we should all also be working on education reform, on employment reform, on healthcare reform, on housing reform. All of these things are social justice and they are interconnected. We need to work on environmental reform that affect mostly our, our indigenous brothers and sisters and our black and brown brothers and sisters that live near industries and that affect them with our health as far as um, uh, respiratory diseases and things of that nature, which makes them also more vulnerable to COVID. So things of this nature is, is what we need to uh, be about and a well-rounded, there is not one single pinpoint or pressure point for social reform. It's not one, it's, it's several. There's classism, there's racism, there's sexism, there's um, all kinds, Just you could just name it, uh, religious uh, oppression, all kinds of things that are going on. And we need to make sure that we have an active 
footprint in all those areas. The North County Equity and Justice Coalition, that is our aim. It is a coalition of coalitions that do all of these kinds of work. We have people that work with the homeless exclusively, along with people who work with the mental health uh, issue with law enforcement and uh, uh, trying to remove this, this connection between mental health and law enforcement, trying to move the connection between homelessness and law enforcement. We have people who are working in the class issues. We have people working in all these different things. And yet we all understand that this is all social justice for equity and justice. So um, these diverse tactics, which make us stronger, not, not something that should separate us. I think it's interesting how you mentioned that um, the North County Equity and Justice Coalition is working directly alongside law enforcement. So, well, I guess to remove law enforcement from these um, critical areas, such as mental health and homelessness. So do you, I guess, by extension, then support the defund the police movement to reappropriate funds from the police to greater mental health services and support for the homeless and education, et cetera? Absolutely. Um, and that's part of our platform as uh, here in North County, also part of our coalition is the North San Diego NAACP. And we have a, a um, police transparency and accountability task force. And it includes the North County Equity and Justice Coalition and the San Diego, um, the Racial Justice Coalition of San Diego, a lot of different organizations. And we went to all law enforcement in all the cities in North County and gave them our demands, basically, what we want to see changes. And that includes uh, defunding the police, even though I don't like that phrase. So I call it um, um, reallocation of funds because it exactly means what I'm saying. And I like, I, like, I like sharp terms that say exactly what I'm saying and not what everybody else is saying. So we say reallocation of funds because we want those funds that they get, those millions of dollars for supporting homeless in their hot teams homeless outreach teams to be reallocated to social services who do that work for a living. Officers are not supposed to do that work for a living. So give it to them so they can remove the badge and the gun from this, this uh, community that most often doesn't need that type of support with a badge and a gun, but they do need the support of social services. And the same issue when it comes to mental health, to reallocate those millions of dollars out of their mental health program into mental health civilian social worker mental health issues, unless there's a, a, a mortal danger from either group, then, then of course they have to have um, something to protect them. But the majority, the vast majority of interaction with the homeless and mental health is non-lethal. So let's turn it over to these social justice, uh, social services organizations, whether it's state or city, and fund that money into them. And, and um, that, that's what I support. I support that 110% because their budgets are inflated over things that don't have to do with policing and even law enforcement officers, when they hear our, our description of what we're after and what we want, the officer on the street is like, yes, thank you. I'm doing way too much. I'm going to getting people out of uh, water fountains and, and climbing out of trees and, and someone thinks they're, they're the king of England and they won't get out of a, a, a little pool, city pool. It's not, it's not a, a, like a fountain, you know what I mean? So it's not a crime that requires a badge and a gun. It requires somebody to talk them down, 
to get them to calm down whatever their issue is and get them to safety and get them treatment and get them situated. People who are homeless who are sleeping out in the park and have nowhere to go, a badge and a gun is not gonna solve their homelessness, only a home will. So we need people who are in those services that it, it doesn't require a badge and a gun. And they're saying they spend most of their time doing that kind of work. And we want to, things that don't have to do with crime should be diverted to the, the people who do it for a living. They went to school for it. They love it. You don't have to worry about them saying, oh, I just came from a jumper call and now I'm at a homeless guy in a tree call and I ain't feeling that right now. I'm kind of upset and I want to, you know, you don't got to worry about that transition of emotion. These people do it for a living and they love it. So uh, to answer your question, even though I don't use the term defund the police, I support them and uh, I want reallocation of funds to these social services. And we ask all the cities in North County, when we meet with their sheriffs or law enforcement, these are the things we ask for and we demand and we make um, plans to achieve those. So then how do you address um, the conservative talking point that defund the police is only gonna make our communities um, more dangerous? You know, there's not gonna be police officers if you get robbed, et cetera. Um, how do you address that misinformation? Well, they, the, the tricky thing which started all of that is the term defund the police, right? It's, there's been, since that term has been popular, there's been a wide range of meanings depending on who you talk to. There are some people who say absolutely defund the police, shut down the, the, uh, the station and, and get rid of the police. There are people who talk like that. Not all of them do but there are people who talk like that. And then there are other people on the other end of the spectrum saying, yes, reallocate funds where things that don't have to do with policing to social services and a lot in between. So when you put out a defund the police, what happened on a conservative side, they looked at the worst case scenario and think that represents all of us and what we're talking about. So we try to explain to people, what do we mean? That term is already out there. People, they can't help but use that as as the, the term for what we're after. And that's why I try not to use it as frequently unless people don't know what I'm talking about, but um, reallocation of funds. And then they understand that better. They understand it more for what it's for. Now, like I said, there's a wide range in defund the police. And sometimes when people say defund the police, they mean defund the police. I have no problem with those people. They can do and say what they want. But for me, that's not what I'm after. I'm after reallocation of funds. So I understand their confusion. I really do. Because the term is kind of clumsy, in my opinion. And it, it, it says a lot of different things. And in, in it's a broad spectrum of things. But reallocation of funds is specifically that. It's, it's really narrow term. And I prefer those kind of terms. Um, so I'd like to transition and talk a little bit about your role with the North County Equity and Justice Coalition. So as you mentioned a bit earlier, uh, the coalition works to promote intersectional activism. What does inclusive and intersectional activism look like to you? That we have everyone at the table, not only our black and brown brothers and sisters, not only our indigenous brothers and sisters, not only our, our uh, Asian brothers and sisters, but our youth. We have to have our white allies there. We have a wonderful set of white allies that, that really know how to be an ally. For example, one of our white allies showing up for racial justice and they have a 
showing up for racial justice San Diego and a showing up for racial justice North County. And North County is on my coalition. It is a coalition of white people who understand their role as supporters and they will not take the lead on anything. Even if you try to make them, they won't. And that's their, that's their marching uh, uh, principles. So we have those people. We have people who are in um, uh, uh, prison reform. We have people who are in uh, um, all kinds of uh, youth, youth reform, things of that nature. So when we have everyone at the table, we can not only share our ideas, we can also tell people, hey, me, I have an issue and I need some mentors for some youth who were on probation. That doesn't exclude people from, from um, that's working on the environment or people working on nuclear waste or people who are working on air quality or people who are working on homelessness or mental health. That's all of our issue, right? So we can make sure that we have a better understanding of what other people are doing and how we can help them. And we can come together and make uh, and add ideas to marching forward, to making plans and, and things like that. Sometimes those issues require a vote of some sort that someone working in the environment doesn't know about that vote that needs to come out, but you need all of those people to vote. And the same vice versa. Sometimes there's homelessness uh, issues that are coming up or there's environmental issues that are coming up for a vote and you need all of those people. So we want to avoid working in silos because those silos divide our forces. It divides our numbers, it divides our voting power, it divides our, our rallying and marching uh, strength. It, it, it really does divide us. Even though each silo is doing great work, we need to be at the same table talking the same language so that we know what's going on. And it's the same way that um, uh, North uh, San Diego's Racial Justice Coalition works as well. It's coming to the table with a lot of different people at the at the table. So the North County Equity and Justice Coalition, we also specialize in the youth and making sure the youth is heard and the youth is supported and guided. They tell us what events they have going up. They would appreciate uh, some adult support and we go there. We make sure we go there. We give them advice if they need it. We uh, stand in solidarity and just be quiet and do what they tell us to do. And, and give, empower them in leadership positions. So um, it, it looks exactly like that, that everyone you can think of is at the table. LGBTQ uh, um, Resource Center is also a part of the, the uh, North County Equity and Justice Coalition. So, you know, we make sure that we reach across all bounds. We have Christians, Muslims, Jews, people of no faith, atheists. We have everybody there because it's everyone's issue. Uh, equity and justice is everyone's issue. And I don't think that there's a, a more diverse group of, of people in San Diego County than, than we have created here in North County. So um, that, that's really what we look like. And we also make sure that everyone is empowered to, to talk about who they are. We have, we have nearly two dozen different organizations in our, in our, organiz in our coalition. And we need to know who they are, what they represent. Not everyone is on the same page with certain issues. So we make sure that you know that if if abortion is the issue, some people are pro and some people are some people are pro-life, some people are pro-choice. If there's a pro-choice thing going on and you're pro-life, you don't have to participate in the pro-choice. Just don't just don't hate within our organization. 
And if you're not for pro-life, you don't have to be pro-life. Just don't hate in our organization. So that's that's what we are. We have the option to support or not support based on the ethos of our different organizations, the ethos on your ethnic background, the ethos of your religious convictions. There are some people in a Native American tradition that if we have an event at at um, one of these parks that's named after a general that killed a lot of indigenous people, they'd be like, look, you're not thinking indigenous friendly by having those there and we will not participate in that. And if that's going on, we'd have no control of it. We understand that and we don't say, well, you're out of the group. And we try to make uh, changes so that we can make sure we be inclusive. But you're gonna run across some things that not everyone can participate. And we say, that's okay. Do not let that disrupt us. Don't let it pull us apart. And I think that's our biggest strength. Um, so you talked a little bit about this earlier, but you mentioned um, how the North County Equity and Justice Coalition promotes interfaith collaboration. In what ways does the North County Equity and Justice Coalition give people of all religious backgrounds a voice? Well, we are we have as a part of the North County Equity and Justice Coalition, the Poway Interfaith Team, which is a, a interfaith team, and it has uh, Muslims, Christians, Jews, uh, Baha'is, uh, Hindus, everyone uh, a part of that team. We also have Escondido Together who supports us, who is a, another interfaith team. We have uh, uh, so many other interfaith teams that support us and are a part of what we do. And we try to make sure when they have interfaith events that our team of people who reach throughout North County are aware of these interfaith events that are going on whether it's a Muslim event, Christian event, uh, a Jewish event, solo, or something that combines all of us. So we make sure that people are informed for understanding and coalition in that way as well. We also have anti-human trafficking uh, uh, allies to fight human trafficking. So I, I tell you, the, 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 the spectrum is really broad in the thing that we've developed in North County. Absolutely. Um, so I'd like to transition a bit to talking about um, the concept of um, police brutality. Um, so a problem that you've addressed as an activist is the growing number of Black people being killed as a result of state-sponsored police violence. In the San Diego area specifically, has justice been served for those who have been lynched at the hands of the police? Not, not no, not in many cases. Um, there are families who who has not received justice. Uh, we have many names, Jonathan Cornell, Sergio Wick, uh, Alfred Alongo, Raul Rivera. I can go on and on with the names of families right. that we work with trying to receive justice for those families. Um, the only one that I can point a finger to is the, um, the, the uh, one family, uh, I forget the name right now, here in Vista, not too far from me, where the officers, the sheriffs, um, they plowed the father's head into a uh, wooden plank of a wooden fence and broke with so much force it broke the wooden fence. And the district wow. attorney on that time brought charges against those officers for violating those people's, the father and son's uh, uh, civil rights. And they took it to court, but then the jury let them go. The jury let okay. them go. So, but when it comes to holding officers accountable, as you know, officers are frequently uh, exonerated from the things that they do when police involve shootings and things of that nature in San Diego and everywhere else. 
Um, there are cases where an officer is held accountable for some things like there's uh, uh, rape cases, you know, there's some obvious cases where the officer was caught uh, on film, but those are very few and far between. And the, we have many families that are still uh, seeking justice here. So we have a bad track record of, of holding law enforcement officers feet to the fire, uh, firing them, removing their, their police certification so they don't just go ahead and get, get, get hired somewhere else. We still don't decertify police. It's not another one of those reform actions that we have to have. So we look at, we look at those, those um, accountabilities and we keep those family members' names alive. Annually, we have marches and rallies and car caravans lately. So um, car caravans in honor of those people who had lost their lives so right. that we don't forget that there's still justice to be had for these families. So yeah, that's how we address those issues is that we keep them alive. We keep pressuring the district attorney to, to prosecute officers. Uh, the, the San Diego, the regional, the um, Racial Justice Coalition of San Diego has a current campaign of prosecute or resign for the DA. You know, so we hold that, we hold these kind of campaigns to make sure the people are aware and to put pressure on those offices to prosecute these rogue officers who are abusing, who are saying racial epithets, who are putting out different internal emails that get leaked out to the public. Uh, one calling the police chief Hitler and the other one calling the, and joking about the mayor's sexuality. So, you know, no matter what side of this oppression you fall on, we're against oppression. So yeah, that, that oppression was against, or that, that insult was against the chief of police in San Diego, but we support it no matter who it is, right? And it was against the new mayor, incoming mayor. So we support those kind of things to make sure that that don't happen to us. Because if it can happen to the chief of police from inside the police department, what do you think will happen to us on the streets, right? So right. in the mayor of the city, right? So what do you think happened to us on the streets? So we make sure that we highlight every wrong, every injustice and keep the eyes on those families who have lost loved ones who have yet to receive justice. So I think it's interesting that you mentioned how a lot of these police officers, you know, use racial epithets, um, use anti-Semitic slurs, et cetera. Um, do you think that, you know, the internal culture of policing can be changed given how overly reliant it is on racist, anti-Semitic, um, transphobic, sexist sentiments like that? I think it needs to be, the, the culture needs to be gutted and there needs to be penalties for action, actions in that, in that line. There's no, no strong penalties in that, in that phrase. So if we have penalties for actions, it tends to curb people's actions because the only thing that really make people change is their income. That's the only thing. People yelling and screaming and stuff, that makes some changes. But if you hit someone in the pocket, then they really make changes. And right. a lot of these officers know that they won't be fired. They won't be put, they go on leave with pay when they're, when they killed someone. So we're, we're looking for people to lose pensions. We're looking for people to be fired, arrested. Uh, we're looking for those kinds of, of changes and that will change a culture when you put penalties for their actions and 
that you keep transparent on what these, these uh, offenses are so that the community knows what kind of officers they have. When they break a, a major law and they do things that it should be in a database that we can all see and then we can hold them accountable. Why is it? Why does this person still have a job? Why aren't they arrested? You know, if it's bad enough, why aren't they arrested? Or if it's a, a slur or something like that, why do they still have a job and a certification to support or quote unquote protect those people that they obviously hate and don't get along with? So this transparency and accountability is the method to make changes in the culture. Um, I think it's interesting that you noted um, the culture of accountability. You know, given the whole back the blue movement, do you think that, you know, Americans have become, I guess, disillusioned about um, the role of policing in our country? Do you think that people um, recognize that our police system, I guess, is bad, but choose to ignore it in a sense? I think that only people who are not affected by bad policing support the police. But everyone else who sees every day the, the, the hazards of, of rogue cops, we understand because we live it. But we have right. people who have no idea because law enforcement is basically their friend. The law enforcement will not stop them uh, unnecessarily on police stops. They will not uh, target them for uh, sitting in a place that they can... Uh, consider them not belonging. They they don't get that. They don't get followed around and and all of these kind of things. They don't. That doesn't happen to them. So they're disconnected from this this uh, movement, right. in that they don't see it because it doesn't happen to them. The only reason why people saw it with George Floyd is because we were on lockdown. There were no sports games. You couldn't go to the park. You couldn't go to the beach. You couldn't go to anything. The whole planet was really on lockdown. But we were on lockdown here. George Floyd wasn't the first one. We have Eric Garner, you know, just for choking. You know, he wasn't the first one. So we have Eric Garner in New York. So we have uh, non-choking like Tamir Rice. We have uh, Sandra Bland. We have all these people. And there was no George Floyd response. Why? Because people can divert their attention to something else why people of color are being killed and harassed on the street. You can turn on a game, you can turn the channel, the news is bad, change to something else. But in COVID-19, if there is a silver lining, it made sure that people had no way to distract themselves from what was going on. So that's why we saw all the different people in the streets, all the support around the world, because now they, could, they were forced to, to face their own inaction. And that propelled them off the couches and into the streets. So we need to make sure that those people who think that law enforcement is, acts the same towards everyone, they don't act the same towards the homeless. They don't act the same towards mental health uh, uh, issues. They don't uh, uh, act the same towards the status quo. So we, they just need to see that. And, and I think George Floyd during COVID is a very strong proof that they, they bury their heads in the sand. Final question here. Um, do you think that a more equal, equitable future is possible within our lifetimes? Do you think that, you know, the end of um, police brutality as we know it um, will happen in our lifetimes? You know, I have to be optimistic, but so I'll, I'll say that, that I'm optimistic. But also, life surprises. It surprises. 
I never thought that a, a black person, George Floyd name would be in the Middle East and in Africa and in China and in Russia. The world will surprise you. I never thought in our lifetime we would have a black president ever. So life will surprise you. So I can't sit there and say, no, not in our lifetime, because I would have said the same thing when uh, before Obama, let's say 10 years before Obama, I would have said that, that, you know, not in my lifetime, but hopefully in my kids and grandkids, like I was wrong. I would never said that the whole world would be focused on American brutal police brutality on people of color in the streets of America. We were wrong. Right. So it, it, I have to stay optimistic because life will surprise you as long as you keep on the grind and do your work and, and make sure that that this is known throughout the world. We're transparent with it. And when they don't want to be transparent, we share this around the world and throughout our cities and throughout our state and throughout our country, what's going on in this nation. And we keep the movement going. So to answer your question, I am optimistic and and to, to show that, I see that life is very surprising. I think that message of optimism and hope is a good one to end on. Yusuf, thank you for your time. You're so welcome. I sympathize a lot with Yusuf as someone who similarly exists within the intersection of several marginalized communities. We actually had a lengthy conversation following the end of the interview on how our identities as Black Muslims have impacted our understanding of the world. We also talked quite a bit about the issue of reform versus abolition following the interview as well. Although I personally support abolition, it was interesting to hear a different perspective on the issue. Our differences on the issue truly establish how the Black experience is not a monolith by any means. Liberation for some looks a lot different than it does for others. Descent was edited, created, and produced by me, Muna Ali, for my Global Scholars Senior Project. Global Scholars is a program dedicated to promoting a global perspective within the Central Ohio High School community. Special thanks to my advisors, Brandon Allen and Kendra Polito, for their advice and guidance. I'd also like to thank Nicole Wright from Peace Catalyst International for connecting me with several of my guests. And I'd lastly like to thank Yusuf Miller for taking time out of his busy schedule to speak with me. Thank you for listening. Tune in next week for our next episode.